to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. This is a podcast where we talk about movies that we love and that maybe you also love or are going to love soon and our relationship to them and what they mean to us. I feel like one of the themes we've been getting at in a lot of our episodes, really the whole time we've been doing this, is how movies can offer us as kids and adolescents a way to search for community. And today's episode about Hairspray with Aubrey Gordon is very much that. And yeah, I'm just so excited to share it with you. Aubrey brings out something wonderful in us and in our show. I don't think we've ever laughed this long or this loud or this hard. (laughs) And I have been reflecting lately that one of the things that has been getting me through this whole pandemic situation is just the ability to to laugh at all. But specifically those moments, like most of all those moments when you're talking to a friend and you both start laughing really hard at something and then you look each other in the eye and like the moment of laughter has an option to end. And then you're both kind of like, no, let's keep laughing. That's how I'm getting through it. And so if you want to hear people talking about a movie that they love and laughing the entire time, listen to this episode, listen to Aubrey, talk about Hairspray. She's amazing. She co-hosts a show called Maintenance Phase, wonderful show called Maintenance Phase with a guy named Michael Hobbs, who I hear is great. I'm not super familiar with his work, but I hear it's amazing. (laughs) And yeah, we have been making this show for a year now. We just recorded a one-year anniversary special that you can listen to on Patreon. And I am just so thankful to anyone who is out here listening to this episode right now, if you have been able to get through this period of all our lives and to continue to get through it, if we have helped you in any way with that, then I just feel immensely grateful for that and to you. And here's to another year of talking about movies, which is what I will tell my grandchildren I was doing during this time. So thank you for sharing some laughs with me. Hello, everybody. It's me, your You Are Good co-host, Alex Steed, with a few quick notes before we begin. First, You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible by you, by our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. There you can find bonus episodes and conversations. So you're not just supporting the show, you're getting some extras. Last week, we had a conversation. It was Sarah, Carolyn, and me talking about our first year in operation as a show and uh, everything that's happened in the past year. It was a lovely chat. You can find it again at patreon.com slash you are good and a whole bunch of other bonus ephemera Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us there. But if you want to support the show in addition to Patreon or just in any way whatsoever, please leave us a review. Uh, Do the stars thing. Write some words if you can uh, at Apple Podcasts. That really goes a long way, believe it or not. It's very helpful. You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work throughout these here United States. If you need video produced, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. If you want to find us on Twitter or Instagram, we are there. As there is every week, there's an episode-inspired playlist, which you can find in our show notes. These are songs that uh, come to 
Sarah's mind come to my mind when we think about the conversation we had, when we think about the movie at hand. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no logic to how we pick it. We just, uh, we have this chat in our brain. Then we go out there and we pick some songs. And uh, this is what we come up with. We got some lovely feedback about the playlist that we had for our Legally Blonde episode. It was very 2001 focused, the year that I graduated from high school. (laughs) I loved that list and I'm glad that you loved it as well. Thanks for letting us know. A few quick caveats and notes about pronouns in this episode. Divine is the drag persona of Glenn Milstead. Uh, Really, Harris Glenn Milstead, but known as Glenn Milstead. Divine is a woman. The character is a woman. Glenn identified as a man. And Divine plays Edna Turnblad, who is identified presumably as she in, uh, in the movie Hairspray. And we often interchangeably refer to Edna and Divine interchangeably. So we refer to both as she. So I just wanted to point that out because Glenn identified as he. Divine was the she persona of Glenn as a drag queen. Just wanted to give a heads up there. If you are younger than I am and you, you're not familiar with Divine or you're only tangentially or peripherally familiar with Divine, look Divine up. Spend some time with Divine. Uh, I'm just so glad that this is a persona, a personality that just existed on the ether throughout my entire childhood. Uh, unfortunately, Divine passed in 1988, not long, actually a couple of weeks after Hairspray came out, which is just tremendously sad. But I'm grateful to Divine. Really put a lot into the ether that uh, you'll hear in the episode that meant a lot to me <laughs> in ways that I didn't quite appreciate until relatively recently. Uh, and was the character design inspiration for Ursula in The Little Mermaid. All right, that's enough from me. Uh, If you want to get in touch, find us on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can uh, send us a message on Patreon. Let's hair hop, y'all. Come on, everybody! Boys and girls, stay on the dance floor. Here comes the hottest tune of the day. And it started right here in Baltimore. And where did you see it first, kids? The Corny Collins Show! Could you turn that racket down? I'm trying to iron in here. Once again, your hairdo is getting you in hot water. I happen to be the height of teen fashion. You two checkerboard chicks. What? You know, black and white, salt and pepper. Well, yes. I am a checkerboard chick, I guess. You know, if your father is forced to integrate Tilted Acres, we're out of business. So at least act white on television. Big is beautiful. Hefty Hideaway, Eastern Avenue. You come on in today, you'll be awful glad you did. I'm an integrationist. We shall overcome someday. Not with that here, you won't. Sarah, we got Aubrey Gordon here. We got Aubrey Gordon on the line. <laughs> Aubrey from Seattle, Washington. <laughs> Calling in from Tampa. <laughs> the energy is just different when Aubrey's here. Yes. There's no warming up. We're like, we're fucking ready. Fit record. It's happening. Well, it's like, you know, when you you get picked up from school by your fun aunt instead of yeah. your mom and you're like, anything could happen today. The possibilities are endless. A spare adult who I haven't handicapped so well. This is great. I've really settled into cool aunt mode in general. Mm-hmm. So I have a niece and a nephew. 
Mm. I get to be their cool aunt. And cool aunt is like not relative to coolness. It's relative to ants. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So you're like the coolest uncool person, oh, which yeah. I feel so good about. I had a person in my old job describe me as a movement ant. I love that. Like ant to the movement. And I was like, I fucking love this. I will take this all the way to the bank. That sounds great to me. Yeah, that's so good. Just a fun spinster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're covering hairspray. And everyone who has asked is like, which one are you doing? And I always say the good one. There is a trend in the YouTube comments for hairspray related media where for the John Waters film, people are like, I prefer the original that I grew up with. And it's like, you saw it first. It's not the original. It's from 19 years after. And it is a movie of a musical that is based on this movie. This is like watching The Little Shop of Horrors with Jack Nicholson in it and being like, I prefer the original with the puppet. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have Aubrey, obviously. Aubrey, tell us who you are and what you're all about. So I am a writer and an author, and I am the co-host of this podcast, Sister mm -hmm. Wife, Maintenance Phase. We are uh, blood relatives. That's right. That's right. Where myself and one Michael Hobbs debunk and decode a bunch of wellness and weight loss and nutrition and health stuff. Hell yeah. mm -hmm. And more than all of that, I am a fat lady about town and I'm so excited to talk about the most fat lady about town movie I've maybe ever seen. They go all over town. All over town. Up and down and all around. They even end up in Pia Zadora's apartment. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I love this movie so, so much. But Sarah, our friend Laura Lippman said on Twitter, I want to write a piece. Basically, I want to write a piece about rom-com rom set in Baltimore. Mm. And I was like, we're about to record Hairspray with Aubrey. That counts as a rom-com, doesn't it? And Laura said, I'm so excited for you to do this. And yes, it does. But John Waters, who happens to be my spiritual leader, I don't know how to say this word. Um, sui generi, is that right? I, In my head, when I read it, I say sui generis, but that is my own personal headcanon about how to say it. And what does that mean? It means like without genre, like a genre unto himself. Totally. Like, you're like there's it. comedies and there's dramas and there's John Waters movies. Absolutely. And I agree. And we'll we'll talk so much about that. But then she says, I hope to listen to this episode while sitting next to Divine's grave. Ah! So we can all know that that's probably a thing that'll happen because Laura is a oh, woman Laura. about Baltimore and John Waters, as I understand, married her, like what was the officiant to her wedding. And Laura keeps her word. Wow. And she keeps her word. And I. so the reason I wanted to do this specifically, and I'm so glad you're here, Aubrey, as a person who has upfront described yourself as a fat woman about town, is... I just heard an interview with John Waters on WTF. It was a great interview. Love John Waters. But he, John Waters is under the impression you can't say fat. Like you can't hmm. say the word fat. And I, I I assume John Waters is coming at things in good faith. And he doesn't seem like an anti-woke warrior or anything. Like he was talking about sort of the caveat. But he John Waters has some bad info. <laughs> Yeah, totally. This is a conversation that has not made its way to John Waters just yet. Yeah, totally. John yeah. hasn't gotten the book. I bet we could get John the book. Yeah, can we start with that, actually, Aubrey? Like, what would you, what do you want to say to John Waters? Listen, what I want to say to John Waters could fill a book. I have so many things to say to John Waters. I just, I love him so much. So what I would say to John Waters and to any of your listeners who are nervous about saying the word fat, this is a conversation that has largely happened in the absence of actual fat people. 
what I would say is fat is for me a physical characteristic like being tall, like at this point having purple hair, uh, like having blue eyes. These are all neutral things about me. And fatness is one of those things. And that things get real weird when people try and tiptoe around it, because what they are telling me is their own baggage with what I look like, sure. not being respectful of my own boundaries, because that would involve asking about my own boundaries. So what I would say to folks who are maybe nervous around saying or hearing the word fat is, you know, ask the fat people in your lives what words they want to use when it's relevant and then use those words. And if it's not relevant, don't ask because that's weird. And hopefully they won't tragically die before they can tell you. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Sarah, do you want to tell us what this movie is? Yes. I mean, there are two things this movie is. There's A, what it's literally about and B, where it is in the John Waters canon, which I feel like my understanding is that Hairspray kind of represents a crossover because John Waters sort of thing by thing moved from being the dog shit eating movie guy, Pink Flamingos, to the Kathleen Turner suburban comedy movie guy, Serial Mom, which she had a much bigger budget for. I always call that the Matthew Lillard comedy that she happens to be in. But that, you know, we all... <laughs> We just describe things differently. That's fine. It is 100% a Matthew Lillard movie. We got to say Matthew Lillard was kind of a scream queen of the 90s. He was a scream prince. He totally was. I mean, even down to like in its way, SLC punk yeah. fits into that, Definitely. right? There's like a lot of oh, like, yeah. whatever people die in hard shit. And, and my sense of hairspray to get to the plot is I always assumed for some reason Having never seen it before we did this episode, I was like, oh, it's about Tracy Turnblad, who's a good dancer who loves all the new music in 1962. And it's about her struggle to get on the Corny Collins show. And then I was watching it and she just immediately gets on the Corny Collins show because this is not a universe where everyone is cruel to misfits because sort of one clear or a couple of clear villains are. But where if you show up and are like visibly a good dancer, then like Corny Collins and all the cute teen boys will be like, you're a good dancer. You're cute. This is great. We will ostracize and punish people who are mean to you. The dream. Yeah. And then really, you know, that part is easy. And then the movie is about like, well, now that you've like done what a normal kind of teen girl movie of this era would take the entire movie to do. You've done that in the first half hour. So what are you going to do with the next 60 minutes? And Tracy Turnblad is like, I'm going to integrate TV in Baltimore. <laughs> and that's what the movie's about. <laughs> and get thrown into a reform school for girls. And get put in special ed because of her hair, the height of her hair. She's a real hair hopper. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of two things that scared this shit out of me with regard to I might get sent to an institution. It was like this. Mm. And there was um, on Punky Brewster where she had to go to like the foster children's home. Mm. There were like two situations in which like it was burned into my mind that like there might be a situation in which someone's going to put me in an institution. Mm. This is certainly one of them. Thankfully, it didn't turn out that way. Thankfully, very thankfully, everyone's <laughs> win. Yeah, that's a tight description. Is there more? Yeah, that's my summary. I'm experimenting. That's so good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I love it. <laughs> Aubrey, what's your relationship with this movie? Basically, my relationship with Hairspray was I was like five when it came out. So it was not on my radar when it came out, came out. But uh, I watched it quite a bit in high school 
where I was in high school in like the late nineties and coming out like my freshman year in high school in the late nineties, which was real young at that point and was coming out at a time when the state where I lived, Oregon had the most anti LGBT ballot measures of any other state. And I believe we still hold that record. Yikes. Oh, wow. There's always another sordid thing to, to learn about Oregon. It's rough, man. A lot of that has to do with like, we were the right size and shape and demographics to test things out in Oregon mm. and then export them to other states if they worked in Oregon. Oh, that makes sense. So it's not necessarily just like Oregon is inherently gross, although it is also that. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, while they were testing all that stuff out, like there were like hate crimes associated with those campaigns. There were like people who died as a result of them and all of that mm -hmm. was happening while I was coming out and mm -hmm. it felt really mm -hmm. gross and scary. Mm -hmm. And the response to that was overwhelmingly like, how do we clean things up enough to be appealing to straight people so that they will stop withholding like really basic stuff from us? Mm -hmm. And Hairspray came along and the whole John Waters canon came along and was like, yeah, what if instead of cleaning it up, we made it grosser? <laughs> what if we just really leaned into being like the boogeyman, but in like a really charming way? What if we made it all gross? Yeah. What if we just yeah. did like an extended, very closely miked scene about <laughs> popping a zit, yeah. about Debbie Harry popping a real gross zit? So good. And what if Divine was the mom and we were just like, yep, <laughs> there's her mom, whatever. Your mom is divine. Congratulations. She's sweating and ironing the whole time and she gets a makeover. Talking about her diet pills wearing off. Oh, the <laughs> diet pills. Yeah, the sweatiness of, of divine is like, should be a Wikipedia. It's incredible. It's a thing of beauty. <laughs> so anyway, it was just really wonderful and refreshing at a time when it wasn't necessarily like safe or welcomed to be like the gross and loud and garish version of queer mm. to have this whole little treasure trove of John Waters films yeah. that were like, yeah, it's going to be gross and it's going to be weird and it's going to be a lot. And it's going to be like aggressively queer, even though this is ostensibly a story about straight people. Right. Mm. This is like yeah. an extremely queer take on straightness. Yeah, <laughs> like the whole thing is like the gayest shit. I feel like the nineties were like the time of obscenely, dumb time magazine covers about queer culture and my favorite one was like not gay not straight a new sexuality emerges oh, yeah, bisexuality, bisexuality. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's a classic it was made in a lab by the team that cloned dolly <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. so yeah i just feel like this movie in particular, but a lot of John Waters movies were just like functionally like images in a locket that I would keep around my neck all the time. Do you know what I mean? That were just oh, yeah. like, also queer shit. Here it is. Also fat stuff. Great. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff felt felt really important and really helpful. Mm -hmm. So I, I relied heavily on this movie in uh, high school in particular and loved it dearly. How about you two? What's your what are your personal relationships with with this one? Alex. When I was a teenager in an early teen, like starting like at 11 or 12, I started getting like really into cinema, mm -hmm. movies about serious things by serious people. And I think that that's how I came into, like, I think I was supposed to like 
you know, female trouble and like Jim Pink flamingos and, and sort of like, you know, the, the early Uber. And it was just, I just found it so unpleasant and I wasn't like ready for that in a way where I would like later be ready for it. But I think like the easiest, you know, like I could cheat and be like, oh, I know John Waters through Hairspray. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And kind of based on all the things that you just said, it's like, I love the idea of like, this is sort of like a queer idea of heterosexuality and a queer idea of straightness, because I was like, just texting with Sarah earlier and just being like, you know, this is such a farce that feels so true. Like it feels so, Mm -hmm. you know, Sonny Bono and and, uh, what's her name? And Debbie Harry, they remind of that couple that was waving the gun at like the protesters last year. Like (sighs) my favorite joke about that couple was someone had captioned it, say hello to my little husband. Yes, <laughs> totally. I mean, they, it feels it's like things have become the farce that is represented in this movie, even though they were already oh, the yeah. farce because this was a farce about a thing that really happened. Like things are so sort of scrambled mm. in that place. But th- I remember watching it early uh, again, probably around 11 or 12 and being like, I understand this universe in a really, really big way. And like it, it was like weird in had heart, which was really important to me. And like, that's the thing I probably would have like tried to pretend I was above at the time, like, cause I was like really cool in my head and cynical and stuff. But I, I liked that it had a lot of heart and it was strange and odd and yeah, all that. So it's been in my life for a pretty long time. Yeah. It's a great John Waters on ramp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a soft entry point to a world that is a whole lot wilder yes when you get a couple steps further into it yeah i worked at a place like where i was too young to work there for sure but the guy who the guy who ran it richie aaron who is dead uh he was the kind of guy who he was where we were in rural maine he was from new jersey like the jersey mob would come up looking for the money he borrowed from them like on a regular basis he'd sneak out the back door he was a really like classic character but he would like cite this movie on a regular basis he'd cite this movie pink flamingos and fatso on a regular basis like and so uh-huh. like he like getting getting to know this movie was like my way to understand my boss a little bit which was Mm. um cool (laughs) (laughs) and sarah you just came into this movie for the first time what is that true yeah this is my first time watching this and i think i always knew that like mathematically i was sure to like it and (laughs) there are some movies like that that i just like am not in a hurry to watch because it's nice that there will be good movies waiting for you did your mathematical prediction pan out? Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, because I'm a huge, like, growing up, I really loved Dirty Dancing and Little Shop of Horrors. And this feels like <laughs> definitely from the same sort of cinematic moment. And also, like, it feels like a companion movie specifically to Little Shop of Horrors because Howard Ashman is from Baltimore. Oh, sure. And yeah. I, I feel like they're just, like, two memoiristic snapshots of Baltimore from the same moment from that time about another same time and like this is kind of tangential but I have a theory Little Shop of Horrors the musical is in part an allegory about the exploitation of Motown talent by white managers (laughs) and here we are so I mean (laughs) that's an episode yeah you guys doing that episode not yet it's like a matter of time (laughs) oh my god can you talk about that for a second? Because that's great. Yeah. The voice of Audrey, too, is Levi Stubbs from The Four Tops. The aesthetic is very clearly like Audrey sings like a Motown singer. And yeah, there's lines like, I'm your genie, I'm your friend, I'm your willing slave. Mm. And just this idea of like, 
the necessary comeuppance of racial exploitation, I yeah. feel like. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be like a clip discussed on a, a right-wing show about how crazy the libs are with their comparisons. But I don't know. I've watched I've watched Little Shop of Horrors a lot of times, and I don't know. That's what I think is happening in there. <laughs> they take Norse mythology literally, so I don't... I'm okay with crazy comparisons. <laughs> I was going to say your wild comparison prediction makes me think that I have now been challenged to come up with a wilder comparison. So I'm just going to be why not taking away on that while we talk. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's one of the fun things about cultural criticism. It's like you can just say stuff. You're not saying it's true. You're saying the thought did occur to me and people can <laughs> run with it or not. <laughs> uh, Aubrey, understanding that this was speaking to like particular elements of your life and your identity when you were first starting to watch it, were you paying attention also to like to the story it was telling about what was going on with segregation in Baltimore? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a it's a hard story to miss. Yeah. <laughs> The storytelling in Hairspray is not what you'd call subtle. Yeah. John Hughes wrote Pretty in Pink and he was like, wow, a teen romance film with issues in it. And John Waters was like, hold my, not beer, but whatever John Waters drinks, creme de menthe. Creme de menthe is exactly right. <laughs> Imagine John Waters going, hold my creme de menthe. Creme de menthe, but like on the rocks, maybe? Right. And out of like a, a, a snifter. <laughs> yeah. Hold my white Russian, maybe. <laughs> yeah. The race politics of this movie are really fascinating and sort of flattened and oversimplified into these kind of archetypes, mm -hmm. which is like in some ways useful and in some ways not. And also, I would argue this is not a film whose mission was to like advance a nuanced conversation about race in the United States. No, right. No. Right. <laughs> Although I imagine in the late 80s, it was like, holy shit, they put this in this movie like for kids. That's kind of crazy. And that could have been as nuanced as it was getting. Yeah, because same as Dirty yeah. Dancing with the abortion, I feel like. You get them in the door with like being loved and admired. And then you're like, and also politics. Like this is <laughs> this is grown up 60s uh, radicals making movies for a spell. Yeah, that's right. Um, the other thing that doesn't hold up great is the number of times I was stricken with this viewing of the number of times that they use the R word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was wild. Holy buckets, guys. That is so much of that word. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although for people, for people who are, and I don't know what your experience was with this, but for people who are listening who are younger than I am, it was shocking how frequent that word was used on like a daily basis, like in school when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. It was really bad. No, totally. And also like the number of like anti-gay and anti-trans slurs that were just yeah. like thrown around as like, like the fact that there was a whole like multi-year public education campaign with Hillary Duff being like, hey, don't say gay when you mean bad. <laughs> was like a whole, like stop saying that's so gay. Was like a whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for Hillary. I had no idea she did that. That's a contribution. Yeah, she sure did. She, it was like PSAs for, I think it was for Glad. Anyway, uh, so like, it's one of those things where it's like, times have changed. This film has not because it was made in a different time. There you go. Mm -hmm. The thing that also delights me to no end is that I was absolutely watching Hairspray for the first time at the point that the Ricky Lake show was on the air. Mm. Oh, sweet. So I knew Ricky Lake first as like 
a truly wild facilitator of like daytime TV nonsense. Yeah. Like, what do you remember seeing on the Ricky Lake show? So they all kind of bleed together for me. So this might be Jenny Jones. Mm -hmm. It might be Lisa. It might be a lot of different. With Lisa Gibbons. Lisa. (laughs) As a kid, like the goal was to just watch as many hours of it as possible, not to remember who was doing what. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I liked Maury, which is still on, by the way. Maury's up there. Absolutely. I mean, like it was all just like horrifying trauma Mm -hmm. being put on a stage for other people to like clap at and laugh at and whatever it made unsolved mysteries look like masterpiece theater (laughs) absolutely america's most wanted do you mean the criterion collection what are we talking about here ricky lake would be stuff like uh, this gay person has a crush on you. Somebody has a crush on you, but we're not going to tell you that they're gay. Right. Like it was not the worst of the worst of those daytime talk shows, but that's also an extremely low bar. This reminds me of something I was thinking while watching this movie, which is like Hairspray and Grease also remind me of each other because they have this theme in common where they show teenagers like vying for a chance to dance on a 1950s dance show And it made me think about, like, what was TV? Well, this is the early 60s, but what was TV during this period? Because, like, my sense of what was on is that there was, like, a lot of Shakespeare. There was, like, the Schlitz Playhouse, like, a lot of theater. Uh And then apparently there were shows that was, like, teens, comma, dancing. That's the show. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about that in the context of how many songs were explanations of dances, which must have been fed by, to get on television, you need to explain how the dance works. It's like TikTok. Oh my God, it's TikTok. Yes, exactly. Ah. People in the middle of the moment must have been like, this will never end because it's feeding itself (laughs) format-wise. How will this ever end? We're screwed. Like, they must have thought, like, in 2020, people would still be doing this. And guess what? (laughs) (laughs) They are! (laughs) Although we took a break for 50 years. Wait, how long do we think it is before someone does, like, a TikTok revival of Shake a Tail Feather from the Blues Brothers? Hopefully the second this comes out. I hope they're doing it at this very second, yeah. So do I. Remember, like, as late as, like, 2004, there was the chicken noodle soup dance. I don't know why I remember this, but I certainly remember. Oh, I don't remember that. Wow. I don't remember this at all. The Achy Breaky Heart was, a, a like, a coast-to-coast and- sensation. Like, I had to do it in gym class for years <laughs> and I give me too me too i mean that was us with like the macarena like we love being told what to do during a song <laughs> we love it we want it absolutely three whole minutes in which you don't need to know what to do yourself you just need yeah. to <laughs> More recently, the Cupid Shuffle, right? Like, this is just continues on and on into eternity. Yeah. Although there was a time when there was a half hour worth of songs where they explained to you how to do the dance. Yeah, totally. (laughs) By the time we got to the grind, they had kept the dancing but left the instructions behind. Absolutely. Yeah, there was like, just hump. Yeah. Yeah, but I was watching this and I was like, you know, I as an adolescent would have really benefited from like a school dance environment where you go with the expectation that you will be told how to move your body as opposed to like, you're 12, just get out there and, you know, move, do what comes naturally to you and 
trust the entire world not to ridicule you mercilessly. It's like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> I see a trap. No. Yeah, exactly. I just got to read a book in this corner. Uh-huh. Your explanation of like what this captures from like a queer lens is so interesting to me because like it's so I mean it's obvious right because like it's John Waters etc it's like the John Waters universe but I am increasingly just thinking of how many things I internalized before I knew anything about like my own forms of identity oh. I was like oh I recognize a lot of this but like didn't put two and two together about like what I was recognizing in it. And like my proximity to orientation has never been like one particular thing. It's just been like, for sure, not straight. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's awful and everyone's sad. <laughs> Sorry if it's a thing that you are just like, I am for sure this because that is a, it feels like a trap that's hard to deal with. Um, but I mm. was always just like, not that, but I don't know what it is exactly. And it wasn't until like my 20s that I even got close to knowing anything about it. Mm. It's not until this, this moment of this conversation am I like, oh, like I was just recognizing like shit about myself. Like I, it wasn't like I was like, you know, just seeing this reality. I was like, oh, it's a farce that lives in some else's place but i was like no this was this was a life a lifeboat mm. that was being sent to me that i wasn't interpreting as until just now hmm. listen cool ant strikes again Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> cool ant says you might be gayer than you thought you were before <laughs> well the hard thing was was like when i went to school to college and then there was like women's studies and stuff like women's studies was when I was in school, the primary way that like gender was being talked about mm -hmm. sort of in this place. So it wasn't until like yeah. my later twenties that I was like, I still don't know, but it's not any of the ready answers. <laughs> you ruled some stuff out. Yeah. Where queerness almost sort of kind of through social media has more rules than it feels like it ever did before in one way or another mm. with, with mm -hmm. particularly with like younger people, there's like a, there's more of a, it's um, like taxes. Yes, totally. Like, like I, the more rules it has, I'm like, I don't know about that. But like this place, this like chaos place, I was like, okay, I feel at home in the, the aesthetic chaos. Alex, are you familiar with the scene in Sex and the City where this is where we're introduced to the character of Anthony Marantino, um, who's Charlotte's pushy Italian friend? And Charlotte's trying to plan a wedding really fast. And so he's taken her to Vera Wang to be shown dresses. And so the salesperson wheels out a cart full of dresses and she's shaking her head at all of them, but being sort of not pushy. And so Anthony's like, hates it. <laughs> and like, that's my impression of you looking at genders. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Uh, I just like that your approach to like sexual orientation was essentially just like ruling out the most common causes <laughs> like a like a doctor doing a diagnosis you're like it appears to be heterosexuality but it's clear that it's not that yeah it's mm -hmm. not even that i mean like i you know i've experienced with men and stuff like that but like i was never like yeah, yeah. i was never like this is my thing like i just have mm -hmm. like anyone who was in like, that degrassi kind of way yeah i could totally understand someone being not totally understand like I, anyone needs me to be forgiving but like i get like <laughs> if someone's like i'm gay like yes absolutely i get that anyone who's like i'm straight i'm like get the fuck away from me like that's <laughs> that's a threat you know like i don't want anything to do with that and i love that this as you said like this movie is is a view of what people who say i'm straight is like and it's hilarious mm. as a result and like that's where i feel at home in this and it's the von tussle yeah. family <laughs> Who are like the only straight characters and the only straight people in all of Baltimore as this movie depicts it. 
Which sounds accurate to what I've heard. And it's hilarious that our intro is like Penny calling her queer. She's like, she's so yeah. queer. And it's like the straightest person in this movie. <laughs> this is probably so obvious, Aubrey, but do you think that like the pairing of this being like John Waters, you know, queer Oz kind of like that, that veneer or whatever is happening here and the theme of sort of like transcendent fatness, do you think that those things are mm. linked in this movie? I think they are, and I think fatness is also viewed through a very distinctly gay man's lens here, mm -hmm. right? Okay, please talk about that. In this film, fatness is sort of the provenance of white women. Who do ironing all day long. Uh, who are trying to iron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. It's like two-thirds of a thought about fatness is what it feels like to me. Yeah. Mm. He's like, okay, it seems like there's a lot of dieting going on. It seems like there's a lot of judgment of fat people. Uh, and then he sort of loses the thread to my sure. mind in the hefty hideaway ads where he's like, mm. you're just big boned. Eat this eclair. Like keep eating where mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, that's where it turns into a joke at the expense of fat people. Mm. I always read that as like a criticism of people who like that guy being like an opportunist is he's like, this guy's just making money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say every take that I have on this movie is like strong opinions loosely held. Amen. <laughs> that's my whole ideology. Aubrey. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So he's sort of like noticing a series of things, but there's not necessarily like a unified thought behind the noticing of that series of things. Got it. But there is this like, very sort of like rooted in drag culture willingness to send it up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all of these remarks from divine about like pass me my diet pills my diet pills are wearing off like that's like her entire thing i'm like yes correct that is mm. just about every like suburban white woman or white mom that i have known has had some relationship to diet pills or weight watchers or whatever right and in 1962 would this have been like pure amphetamines yeah. Yeah. And it's it's like diet culture stuff, but it's also just labor. Mm. Your task with the labor of the household. And this is speed. Like the only way you can yeah. possibly do it is to take speed all day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Either all the diet pills at that point were either uppers or downers. And mm. so there were a bunch there was a bunch of media coverage at the time that was like of course people are losing weight on this pill they're asleep all the time and you have to be awake to eat it's like genuinely like one wow. of the things that came up it's all sort of in that vein and i appreciate that like even without sort of completing that thought about like what's the role of fatness and fat people here all that kind of stuff that he still went with no i'm going to tell a story about fat people mm -hmm. and that he still went with and we're going to send up the diet part of this do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and he like really goes hard in on both of those things and i appreciate that there's not like it doesn't need to be like a complete and self-contained theory of like fat white women in order for it to function mm -hmm. i know that tracy is like a binary for him like how he saw himself when he was in school mm. how much is like well tracy's a fat white straight girl was acceptable for like you couldn't have made i mean i don't know what you could have done but in 1988 i can't imagine like here's a movie about a 15 year old gay boy and like in the 60s like without it being a very special episode like i don't know how it would have been possible mm -hmm. yeah i mean i feel like there's like a long history in queer movie making about like how do we make this story about straight people actually about what it's like to be queer <laughs> right like there's like so 
so, so, so much of that. And this feels like a really great entry into that canon to mm. me, where I'm just like, absolutely, the symbol of outsiderness here is fatness. Uh, it feels like not an accident that everything that happens at Hefty Hideaway is like the loudest, brightest, draggiest kind of mm. look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they're doing this like catwalk fashion show thing that is straight out of drag shows, right? That mm-hmm. like all of that feels like pitch perfect to me. Anyway, I just appreciate the shit out of this movie. And it was absolutely the first time that I remember seeing a movie with a fat person in it who is the lead, who's not like Ursula the Sea Witch has this. Mm-hmm. Like there are other, you know, side characters in like Anastasia that have this, but it's just like a fat person who is completely unconcerned about what other people think of her. Mm-hmm. At least about her body. She was definitely concerned about what other people thought of her in other she ways. She was concerned but... about integration primarily. Yeah. And concerned about like being a good dancer and looking cute on TV and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, great. And also like she's a very self-possessed character. Like I really like Tracy. I love the moment where She's sent to the principal's office, apparently for not the first time, about her hair being too high. And she's like, I happen to be the height of teenage fashion. <laughs> like, she knows where she is. Yeah. The teenage hubris in this movie is just exquisite. It's so wonderful. And I like to think that if, like, John Waters pictured himself as Tracy, like, he was lambasting himself a little bit where, like, little Inez, like, Inez, what's that girl's name? Inez? Lil Inez. Inez, yeah. yeah. She's like, she's like, you're my hero, Tracy. And I like to think that, like, John Waters knows how ridiculous it is to have a black character being like, thank you, white savior. Like, I <laughs> yeah, I, totally. I, imagine he oh, had yeah. that awareness, but uh, that's how I that's how I read that. I might be being too charitable. And Tracy and Link being like, we're white, but our souls are black. And it's like, oh, my God. I yeah. think this movie is laughing at you. I'm pretty sure it is. I feel like any of the moments that made me go like mm, with this viewing, like, I'm not sure. We're all mm-hmm. things where I'm like, oh, I think there's a judgment call to be made yeah, here. That one in particular. Is this movie laughing at this thing or is it not? Hefty mm-hmm. Hideaway is a good example. That Hefty Hideaway mm-hmm. ad. There are a lot of those moments where I'm like, well, I can't tell how hard you're leaning into like cringe humor. And you're like, this feels done in the spirit of campiness, but so is the whole movie, which makes it hard to judge this moment. Hard to find your true north when everything is like self-referential and like (laughs) jokey joke. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sarah, I really do think I'm really glad you said so about the spiritual similarities between this and little shop of horrors i I feel that in a really big way now it feels like it's Mm. clicking how do you think those two movies or representations of baltimore or whatever how do you think they speak to each other well then also creatively like you have two movies that are the brain children of you know little shop of horrors is howard ashman and alan menken who did the music howard ashman did the lyrics and this movie is the brainchild of John Waters. And so these are movies made by white men that are like very dedicated to celebrating black music. And specifically, it seems like what it did for them as adolescents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's like a necessary limitation to that. And yet you also think about, you know, making movies in the 80s in America that would make it to like a mall in a small town in Indiana and... That seems like a a strong connection between the two of them. They both have that project and that they have that to offer and that limitation to their offering. Yeah. In in both cases, they are sort of like 
it feels like they have hallmarks of what in movement organizing spaces you might call narrative strategy, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is sort of like, we're going to make an imperfect thing that's going to move the conversation forward that acknowledges mm-hmm. where folks are at and what they will tolerate, what where a particular audience is at, right? In this case, I think we're mm-hmm. pretty much just talking about white people as the sort of like intended audience here, right? Yeah, or just like who's being talked about as a, as a studio is visualizing what it needs to do. Like, yeah. That seems to be like the unspoken until very recently. And I'm not even sure about recently. It seems like that's who these conversations are about. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense to me. And it's also a thing that hadn't clicked for me where I'm like, oh, right. These do feel like sort of spiritually aligned movies in like a really big, in a really big way. Yeah. With way less. Well, I was going to say way less queerness in Little Shop of Horrors, but no, no. Dentist. Yeah, I don't think so. Seymour and Audrey, too, have a, and Seymour and Audrey, the Audrey, too, have an interesting kind of dynamic. Yeah. In retrospect, like everything I loved as a kid that spoke to me on some level, I'm like, oh, I realized what I was speaking to. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, little, little Shop in particular, whether or not the queerness is overt there, it's like, you know, these are very much movies that are like transcendent outsiders, outsider ascents. Oh, yeah. And how Seymour and Audrey have that same kind of like straight couple, but queer energy quality. Yeah. They're like the straight couple that's like the poster children for conversion therapy, where you're like, "Mm, how straight? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How straight? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, and and also like as as a little kid, I remember really always loving Audrey's femininity because it was just she had the hair that doesn't move. And the really intense makeup looks and just the boobs like pushed all the way up. And then, you know, Ellen Green, who plays her, like she has this incredible fragility in the role. And then she has this gigantic voice and this incredible lung capacity. Mm. And there was, yeah, something in there, too, that I always loved how like this is a character whose femininity is very structured and performed and... And this movie is kind of studying that, it feels mm-hmm. like. And I again, I think Hairspray is, is like that, too. And also, like, let's just say, too, like, the looks in, in this movie are wonderful. And, like, that roach dress yeah. that Tracy wears at the end, I want that dress. I've never wanted anything as much as I want that roach dress. <laughs> like, I want it so much. I also will say, uh, I did, in college, I went through a pretty intense phase of getting iron on letters and making myself iron on letter Mm t-shirts and can't you see that girl's a trash can (laughs) was absolutely one of those t-shirts and watching this again i was like i need to make that shirt again please do immediately i I gotta get that back in my life it was great i love how like in, in any other movie so the the musical of hairspray they did another movie and 2007 Nikki Blonsky is in it and I think after that she was in a Lifetime movie where she's a fat girl who becomes homecoming queen or prom queen Mm. and I guess really is in that template of like she's so sad all the time she's sad and miserable and I was just like in my head kind of comparing Hairspray to the template that I've seen of that character in like the Lifetime movies and the Disney Channel movies and template written teen fair where like what you were saying before Aubrey where like it's so weird to see a fat teenage girl character who's who the narrative isn't invested in like keeping sad Mm -hmm. and 
self-loathing. Like she, like she doesn't feel that at all. And I feel like in any of these other movies, the character of Amber would like have a group of like fellow bullies who would laugh uproariously at everything she said. And in this movie, it's like everyone's like Amber, stop! And like there's a, when they're like picketing, isn't there someone who has a sign that says like Amber? Tussle is an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I did not take note of that one. I was too busy freaking out about the applause sign person holding up a sign that just says falsies in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And she points at it. She's like, (laughs) it's so good. You're like, what? It's, (laughs) it's so great. Everything about it is so great. But like also the falsies moment is like this very queer read on straightness right which is just like oh you're all also doing drag anyway we'll be over here bye like (laughs) oh my god that's so good so thinking about the 2000s the nikki blonsky john travolta zach efron version of all of this Mm -hmm. the post high school musical pre-ted bundy zach efron (laughs) very cool of them to adhere to the queer themes (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right It also feels like a product of its political moment, right? Which was like, we're three years after this big wave of like anti-LGBT ballot measures, anti-marriage ballot measures around the country. Mm -hmm. They've all been lost. And there's this huge push for like a very sanitized sort of version of queerness. And Hairspray Mm -hmm. is like, well, here you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What if we gave you John Travolta? Oh, come on. I don't know the arguments here and I don't know if they're even worth making, but like, I wonder, I like how many people ended up finding out about Hairspray because of like John Travolta and Zac Efron. According to YouTube, a ton of them did. I don't know. I'm curious if there's an argument there or if it's just a cash grab, but like it, bum- it like literally bums me out when I say out loud that John Travolta plays the mom. I know. Like it, like, it bums me out to say that. John Travolta can't iron. But I hope that uh, I hope that John Waters made a shitload of money. Me too. Me too. Me too. I don't know if there's a hairspray two to hairspray one pipeline. I would love it. I would <laughs> love it if that were happening. I will say, um, as a person writing on the internet about fat stuff, often for people who are who are younger than me, the number of people who no shade for these people, no like no judgment, no nothing, who just genuinely don't know. Yeah, that this movie exists, totally. and that mm-hmm. is that is the thing where I'm like, oh, it breaks my heart yeah. that like this like wonderful mess is like not known totally as well as the extremely polished, extremely funded, extremely much more like straight straight friendly, not really Baltimore in spirit, as you say those words. Maybe the Under Armour headquarters in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about how, you know, again, like we're talking about like realizations I'm having about this movie 20, 30 years later, movies like this were my only forms of exposure to anything like subversive in one Mm. way or another. And I think about, again, like a kid, a kid in algorithm reads is queer on TikTok sees more representation to their life before they eat breakfast than I saw in like. 10 years of my teenage how much do they need the things that this movie points to i don't know but like how much do i think they just need this movie because it's fucking weird and great 100 percent. we all need fun movies we are releasing episodes about this movie and about heavyweights 
both of these movies are like uniquely unique movies for their time for being essentially about fat utopias. And both of them feature Jerry Stiller. (laughs) No bugs, baby. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? What is going on here? My love for Jerry Stiller in this role. This is like, I don't have any notes for Hairspray. The closest that I get is like, not enough Jerry Stiller. (laughs) Yeah, I could have seen more Jerry Stiller. It's not a complaint, but you could always do with some more. Absolutely. When he's like doing the TV message of support and then uses his like squirt gun bow tie to be like, also (laughs) shop at my joke shop. And he's like, integration is no laughing matter. (laughs) (laughs) It's so wonderful. He and Divine have absolutely the best lines and the best delivered lines in this entire. And they make total sense as a couple. They really do. They really do. It's perfect. What do they say? Upper lower class? Yes, I love that. Upper lower class teenager. Like just everything. It's just so perfect. I love when we get a hint that like Tracy is getting like male attention or whatever. And and Divine is like, I'd love to know who it is. She's just a child. so good the concern cadence is so good (laughs) so if there's an encapsulation of like this is a queer take on straightness like all ratted up like a teenage jezebel is up there (laughs) here's something that stood out to me about this film as being like especially relevant and useful at this point Mm. is the volume of attention paid to what would now be described as Karen's like Penny's mom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That scene is incredible. Is absolutely the archetypal Karen. Just like walking through a black neighborhood yelling, please don't hurt me. (laughs) (laughs) And like that scene to me, that scene has an incredible punchline because she's like, Like, you could study this for comedy writing, I feel like. Running around screaming, please don't hurt me. And then she runs to a cop to ask for help and sees it's a black cop. And then she, like, that's when she blows her stack. Yeah. (laughs) And just run, like, runs away full tilt screaming the whole time. And that's your your punchline to, like, this essentially non-verbal character study of this person. It's just incredible. So knowing that, again, like this movie came out at like, you know, the height of Reaganism. Mm. I just, I'm like curious about where like the culture meets the curriculum, you know? And so like to think that like this Mm. was available as a counter to like whatever kids were learning in schools in the 80s. And I think about that now Mm -hmm. with like the critical race theory conversation about like what kids aren't going to be allowed to learn in school, but they're obviously going to learn places like they're going to learn in popular culture in one way or another like on tiktok they're still gonna have tiktok right there's although tiktok is the biggest sort of echo chamber ever like tiktok's like you got a truck mm-hmm. we'll show you truck things forever like we won't show you anything else all they ever show me is astrologers Sarah's <laughs> truck. <laughs> i imagine like these movies as this movie as a counter to just like what was happening at the time must have been such like a beautiful breath of fresh air, particularly for people who like saw it first run. You must have been just like, oh shit, this is, it's great to know someone else is on this page. I need this. Well, and I feel like the eighties were prime time for you can never be too rich or too thin. Mm. Right. And like, this is a movie about finding love as an upper lower class fat girl who can dance. And also we haven't even talked about, Oh my God, what's his name? Link. 
The boyfriend? Yeah. But it's like, it's a name like Lois Lane. Link Larkin. Link there Larkin. I love that name. It's so good. He's going to become a disc jockey, I think. Yeah. Like she gets to, to get the guy. And like, we've talked about this recently elsewhere on the show, but like, you know, there's such a trope of look at this dumb bitch. Let's give her a makeover. Yeah. Let's fix her. She's the, she's terrible, but she's beautiful inside. Or you get it and then you get pig's blood poured on your head. Yeah. Or like you change, but then you have to change back to be like, not quite the new you, but not the old you either. Some third you. And this movie is like, no, don't change. Change the world. Integrate Tilted Acres. That's what you should do. <laughs> yeah. If you change anything, bleach your hair and get a lot of bad feedback from people that you like. But do it anyway, because you love it. <laughs> Because you happen to be the height of teenage yeah. fashion. <laughs> Here's a, th a thing that feels like an extreme Baltimore moment in particular mm. is the two of them making out in the alleyway and uh, <laughs> Tracy saying, oh, Link, it's so romantic while she kicks a rat off of her foot. <laughs> like It's just I love that so much. Tracy's so cool. You can take her anywhere. <laughs> it's so wonderful and perfect. That reminds me, I've never seen the new Hairspray, but I do love the song Good Morning Baltimore, partly because I'm a rat person, and it has a lyric that goes, the, the rats in the street all dance around my feet. They seem to say, Tracy, it's up to you. <laughs> Funny, I have a fondness for that as well, and Laura Lippman, who I mentioned at the beginning of the show, every day tweets like a sunrise photo from Baltimore, and I have pictured her singing that song while she's taking the picture. <laughs> I'm sure she does. I'm sure Laura just every day reenacts Belle, but like she's singing Good Morning Baltimore the whole time. And everyone's opening their windows going, Bonjour. <laughs> I would also add that like all the songs in this movie are wonderful. Watching this made me suspect that like it just feels like John Waters has like opened up his old scrapbook and like it just feels like such a love letter to the 60s, the way so much other media of about this time was and like the songs in it that I'm sh I imagine people going to see this movie and like hearing from maybe the first time in 25 years oh also you know what else I love is I love that we get to see people do the Madison because as many of us do always you know hear that line in my head of Brad and a uh, little and Rocky Horror <laughs> not Little Shop of Rocky Horror and the Rocky Horror Picture Show going say does anybody know how to do the Madison? <laughs> and I've never seen anyone do it. And now I have. <laughs> and I can see why he asked that. <laughs> I think the interesting thing is to watch someone in the 80s or the late 80s make a movie about the 60s and have it not be about hippies. Right. Oh, so that's such a good point. And it's pre-Kennedy assassination, yeah. which is another dirty dancing type thing. It's not the capital T, capital S 60s. It's... Just It just happens to be the 60s. It's the nubbin 60s that are the leftover bit from the 50s, like that part of Washington state that's technically in Canada or something. This just came back to me was I had completely forgotten about John Waters cameo. Yes, as the yeah. doctor. Oh, my God. As the racist conversion therapist. Mm-hmm. In terms of, again, like everything's a metaphor for being gay, because if you want to have a wide release movie, you can't talk about being gay at this point. Mm. That is such a brilliant little turn that turns out to be like mm. 30 years ahead of a big wave of 
like anti-conversion therapy movies that's like all right cool what if we have this guy who is so clearly a quack that he's carrying around the like spinny spiral thing yeah poor penny pingleton yeah trying to make her right wing trying to make her racist yeah trying to make her date white dudes instead of black dudes yeah absolutely also we haven't even really properly talked about debbie harry and her giant wig and her backless top and her horrible racism oh my god that's a testament to this movie that we've been talking for like over an hour and we're like oh and also debbie harry <laughs> we haven't talked about rick okasic putting a painting over his head for some reason it's like talking about every ornament on a christmas tree it's like yes. it's like the christmas tree is beautiful every ornament has a story and like an emotional resonance in there it is like that Totally. So Jerry Stiller, I believe, is a father. He is the father in this movie, the primary father. Mm -hmm. As is Sonny Bono, the racist father. Who do we believe is the daddy in this movie? I'll throw out two possible candidates. Yeah. One is, in the most direct sense, is probably Corny Collins. Oh, yeah. Who, like, mm -hmm. shows up to break stuff up and is like, I'll be out there. You know what I mean? Like, he, like, sort of dips in at times to be, like, a decision maker or a peacekeeper. I was not expecting Corny to be a positive influencer, a force for good. Like a lot of the characters who in just by the template screenwriting are like at least passively evil are actually good in this universe. I was really surprised by that. Yeah. To Alex's point earlier, like it's got heart, like it's weird and it's gritty and it's got a lot of heart. And part of that is just like it kind of zags on you with who you think is going to be good and bad. Hmm. The other person who I would put up as a potential daddy is Divine. Mm. Because I think she just owns every single scene that she has. I think she just oh, yeah. kills every line that she has. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's clear that she is in the scope of their relationship and their family. She is absolutely the person with the most power in that family system. Yes. Like, I don't think there's any illusion that people are like, you know, who wears the pants in that relationship is Jerry Stiller with his squirt gun <laughs> bow tie. Like, nope. Nope. She also turns on a dime and becomes a momager. <laughs> she goes full Chris Kardashian. She's just called and she answers. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I agree with both your picks. I would say Penny Pingleton, actually. Oh. She's like also that rare thing in movies, just like a supportive friend who doesn't ever become a pain in the ass. You know, she's never like, you've changed, Tracy, since you've become popular. You, you need to think about how you've been selfish by getting everything you want. She's like, I'm in love with seaweed. I've been kidnapped by my parents. <laughs> I have my own story. <laughs> you know, I just really like it in a movie when there's like teenage girl friends who don't have a big contrived fight because nobody can think of anything else to do. And are just supportive of each other and don't fight over boys. And that happens. And I love that. And Penny's great. Like if we're talking about like, so like fat media representation, part of what this film does absolutely beautifully is turn the fat best friend trope on its head completely. Oh, oh yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Like completely and totally. It is the reverse ladybird. Which is just like fat best friend crying on her couch because she's missing prom. There's a lot of great things about that movie. That's that's not one of them to my mind. Mm -hmm. This is not only are we going to reverse and have sort of the thin person in this like on the sidelines supporting role, but we're also going to give her her own story. And she's also like not going to be a jerk about it. Like it's just like every layer of it is so lovely and perfect and 
It's like generally people getting what they need. That feels like the really cozy John Waters worldview in this movie of like, mis- like there are a lot of weirdos in the world and you'll find each other and you don't have to give a shit what normal people think because they're miserable anyway and they hide bombs in their hair. <laughs> <laughs> they're miserable anyway becomes the whole backbone of prestige TV. Right. <laughs> so true. And final point, I think it's very fun to say Penny Pingleton is permanently punished. You're punished until after you die. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to the delightful Aubrey Gordon. As you could hear in my voice, like we are elated whenever we get to be around Aubrey. Check out Maintenance Phase. Check out Aubrey's book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. Thank you to Fresh Lush, the DJ behind our beats, uh, helps make all of our transitions and openings and closings, etc. Uh, have some texture and have some uh, have some life instead of them just being a rando talking to you alone in a room. <laughs> so we appreciate that, Lush. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I think that's it from me. I hope you're taking care of yourself out there in this weird, weird fucking time. (laughs) We appreciate you. Thanks for everything.